Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 95, Our Noisy Universe. The universe is a huge expanse of space-time, which is mostly empty, apart from occasional moments of explosive violence and destruction. Those occasional moments of explosive violence and destruction don't actually make any noise, since the universe is mostly empty vacuum, but information about those dramatic events is transmitted to us in the form of bright lights and reverberations in the fabric of space-time. Dear Cheap Astronomy, What's the latest on magnetars? Magnetars are a type of neutron star that has a very powerful magnetic field. That magnetic field slowly decays as the magnetar releases flashes of gamma or X-rays, so magnetars only last briefly as magnetars for around 10,000 years before they drop back to being plain old neutron stars. Indeed, there is now a suggestion that many, if not all, neutron stars may spend small parts of their lives as magnetars. To recap, all neutron stars, including magnetars, are the remnants of a massive star that went supernova. Neutron stars generally have a mass of around 1.4 times that of the Sun, but a diameter of only 20 kilometers, which means they are very dense objects. As well as having a hugely powerful magnetic field, Something that distinguishes a magnetar from a plain old neutron star is its spin rate. Where magnetars spin once every 2 to 10 seconds, while plain old neutron stars spin several times a second, generally 1 to 10 times. Another distinguishing characteristic is a magnetar's propensity to release periodic flashes of gamma rays which is why magnetars are traditionally called soft gamma repeaters. The repeating flashes are not proper gamma-ray bursts, which are mostly produced by core-collapse supernovae explosions. However, it is now thought that magnetars may also be at least one source of fast radio bursts, FRBs. In 2020, the first FRB detected from a source in our own galaxy was tracked down to a known magnetar, SGR 1935 plus 2154, where SGR stands for soft gamma repeater. The signal from that SGR fit the specs of an FRB, although it did have less intensity than other FRBs we've detected from outside our galaxy. So for now, astronomers are just cautiously saying that magnetars are one confirmed source of FRBs, although not necessarily the only source. If magnetars are ever confirmed to be the source of all FRBs, expect a cheap astronomy episode titled WTF FRBs SGR++++. Anyhow, the reason behind a magnetar's powerful magnetic field is also a bit of a mystery. Given that being a magnetar is a fleeting 10,000-year blip in some neutron star's lifetimes, it may represent a brief phase of instability 
before a neutron star settles down into a more stable structure. If this is right, the repeating soft gamma-ray flashes and occasional fast radio bursts may arise from a star quake as the immense gravity of a neutron star reconfigures some of its outer layers into a more compact arrangement. If all of this is true, then magnetars are perhaps just young neutron stars that are still settling down after their initial formation, which might also explain why magnetars spin slower, since their collapse down into a denser structure would be like an ice skater drawing his or her arms in. In other words, a more stable compressed neutron star should spin faster than a less compressed structurally unstable magnetar. We need to stress there's a lot of speculation going on here, but this is where current thinking seems to be trending just at the moment. It's also possible that older neutron stars might turn into magnetars if they've been disrupted in some way, perhaps by a collision. A 2017 multi-messenger astronomy observation, which combined gravitational wave detection by LIGO with optical observations by the Hubble Space Telescope, detected the merger of two neutron stars in another galaxy, that merger producing a bright kilonova and a burst of gravitational waves, all of which left behind a hypermassive magnetar of about 2.7 solar masses. So perhaps somewhere in the next 10,000 years, we'll see this hypermassive magnetar compressed down into a hypermassive neutron star, or perhaps into a black hole. The mechanism underlying the intense magnetic field of magnetars is yet another subject of speculation. It may be due to a magneto-hydrodynamic dynamo process where some remnant charged protons and electrons, which hadn't yet merged into neutrons, act like a fluid, which is spiralled around by the magnetar's spin, and hence generates a hugely amplified, although time-limited, magnetic field. Until further compression under the star's intense gravity eventually suppresses this process, so returning that hugely amplified magnetic field back to what is considered normal for a plain old neutron star. This is the middle bit. So next time someone asks you what the difference is between a magnetar and any other type of neutron star, you can say time. Since it is starting to look like most neutron stars have a magnetar phase. Most of what we know about magnetars is information transmitted by electromagnetic radiation, but as we said before, the universe is also filled with tremors in the fabric of space-time itself, or what are more commonly known as gravitational waves. A complex tapestry of new science data we are just at the beginning of unravelling. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Is there a cosmic gravitational wave background? Well, yes there is. Although, all we are really saying here is that the universe contains a lot of background noise in the form of gravitational waves because the universe is full of moving massive bodies that interact with each other. The real interest in the cosmic gravitational wave background is whether there is some kind of background hum 
associated with the Big Bang, which might then confirm, or not, our speculations on the events that occurred in the very first second of the universe. This particularly includes our speculation about there having been early rapid inflation, which would have been a very dramatic and dynamic process, and hence may have left the universe still resonating with its impact. Any massive body that creates space-time turbulence will create gravitational waves. A perfect sphere that spins on its central axis will not create such turbulence, but add a few bumps and imperfections to that sphere, and it will. Gravitational waves also arise from a moon orbiting a planet, and a planet orbiting a star, and stars in binary orbits, as well as neutron stars and even black holes in binary orbits. These are all examples of things that create continuous gravitational waves, which are constantly radiating from multiple sources across the space-time expanse of the universe. The headline-grabbing gravitational waves, like those detected by LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, were a different matter altogether, being all sudden and one-off events. For example, two black holes in a binary system that spiralled inwards and merged or two neutron stars that merged, or a neutron star and a black hole that merged. Such dramatic events create a sudden surge of gravitational waves that rise above the continuous background hum that comes from other more stable sources. So, without meaning to dismiss the grand scale, the engineering sophistication, and the general cleverness of LIGO, For the most part, it is just managing to pull out the most blaringly obvious signals from what might be a vast tapestry of still untapped information. But how much of that information is really tappable remains to be determined, given there is an ever-present background of many and varied gravitational wave sources, some continuous, others irregular and intermittent, then there's a huge amount of processing required to sort all that into known sources you can filter out, allowing you to then investigate more mysterious sources. Achieving all that will involve slowly and meticulously sorting through all the data collected, which is a current objective of the now 16-year-old crowd computing project called Einstein at Home. The problem is that while it's reasonable to assume an orbiting system of two massive bodies, like a star and a planet, should produce a characteristic gravitational wave signal, remember that here on Earth we are a moving point in space-time, surrounded by billions of stars of different masses that have planets of different masses and different orbital periods, and of course each star has a different number of planets. So all that together makes for a lot of varied signal, which borders on random chaos. But, given what we've managed to achieve already, we don't want to rule out the potential for us to sort all this out in the long run. So if all that does work out, finding a primordial gravitational wave signal of the Big Bang does then look feasible. Nonetheless, this will be no small matter, since we don't actually know what we're looking for, After all, it's a signal arising from a hypothetical event, and we don't actually know if such an event would leave behind a signal anyway. 
If early rapid inflation was perfectly symmetrical, like a perfect sphere growing outwards from a single central point, then it wouldn't leave behind any gravitational waves. There will only be a signal if there were some underlying imperfections in that early inflation process that left behind gravitational wave turbulence. So, if it exists, the cosmic gravitational wave background will presumably appear as some kind of continuous hum that's coming at us from all directions with very attenuated waveforms of approximately the same amplitude and frequency. Maybe. This is the end bit. So, there you go. In those rare spots of the universe where there is actually anything going on, there's generally a lot going on. And we do find the more that we look at those spots, the more that we learn about them. And in the case of gravitational waves, we're also learning new ways to look. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to make some waves, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll do the whole surf report for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nellick, Cheap Astronomy.